0: Well, take your Bible, if you would, this morning. Turn to Joshua chapter 10. We'll be in the last, latter part of chapter 10 and all of chapter 11. Very thankful for uh, opportunity as we celebrate even uh, a Memorial Day weekend uh, to just recognize the, the sacrifice that has been given by so many who have gone before us uh, and have served even in uh, our military and who have fallen. And you see flags out everywhere uh, this weekend and I would just encourage you, take a moment and thank the Lord for uh, what you and I have the opportunity to, to uh, rejoice and to live in a kind of country like this. Certainly, uh, we recognize that memorials were not uh, just something that was fitting in our culture or different cultures. Uh, even as we wrapped up last, uh, last week and we talked about this small book that we kind of just glossed over, the book of Jashar. And perhaps you went and even looked uh, what that book was about, because clearly it's not in the inspired canon in the Old Testament. But what you realize from 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 18, is this, this appears to be a book lamenting over the heroic actions of those who had gone before them. This was not something that was uncommon in the life of people of different cultures. And it certainly wasn't uncommon for the people of Israel to recognize and value these areas. We, we leave the children of Israel now off, as we had talked about in chapter 10, uh, thinking and talking about this battle. And now chapters uh, 1 through 12 really kind of encapsulate a, a large, to a large degree the first half or the first chunk of the book of Joshua. Really kind of comes to a close about the fighting and the conquest of the land at the end of chapter 12. And you're going to notice as we study together, uh, chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, you're thinking, how is he going to preach the dividing of the land? He's not. That's for you to go and look at. And there is a level of it where we'll we'll skip over. And I'm going to make some mention of various areas where tribes ended up landing and. Uh, various lessons, things that we can learn from those things. But we're going to be jumping now as we come in after this book, as we encapsulate this first half, to some various uh, interesting portions of Caleb uh, and, and, and his particular portion. And as we look towards the end of July, where we will be wrapping up the book of Joshua, and all of these final accounts and sayings. And so we're, we come today and we, we just come off this miraculous story about God uh, allowing Joshua to, to stop the sun. Now, it wasn't Joshua, obviously, who stopped the sun. It was God stopping the sun based on Joshua's request. God bringing down hailstones. We saw armies that were, were collected together, and we made mention uh, of these particular armies uh, even last week as the southern half of the conquest was now beginning to end. And you could look in chapter 10 and verse number 28, and what you'll notice is this is the understanding that as the, the hailstones came down from the heaven and more hailstones killed anyone else than even the armies of Israel, that there were still people who escaped this. There were still people in the conquest who made it back to their city, made it back to their to their families, and they were still running, and yet they were bringing with them this remarkable story saying, God fights for these people in a way that we have never seen, only have heard about in the land of Egypt. They have God on their side. Well, I'll tell you what, the conquest wasn't over. Now that this southern half of the portion of the land of Canaan was now taken You can read in chapter 10 and what you find, not only did they kill the kings as they brought them out of the cave where they were hiding, but the people had to go back and they still had to fight. It wasn't as if God was saying to them, you know what, I threw hailstones down on them, that's enough, you can go back to Gilgal and rest for the night. The goal was to persevere in every respect of the conquest so that they would do exactly what God had called them to do. They went to each of those particular southern cities. And in the, in the latter part of chapter 10, verse numbers uh, 29 to the end of the chapter, you and I have the recording of the people of Israel going and fulfilling all the things that God had asked them to do. They went in, and you will notice this, this phrase, and they devoted to destruction. Just as Moses said, just as the Lord said, they were fulfilling the command of God by going through this. Now, the northern part of the kingdom knew that they weren't uh, they weren't uh, they weren't going to be you know left for very long before another battle would ensue. And so, while all of this fighting was going on in in chapter ten and in the in the latter part of chapter ten, you have this interesting now short. Synopsis of the Northern Conquest. Now, notice this in chapter eleven, verse one. He says, "When Jabin the king of Hazor heard of this, he sent to Jobab the king of Madon and the king of Shimron and to the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country and in the Arava, the south of Chinnereth and the lowland and in the and in the door in door on the west to the Canaanites in the east and the west." The Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops like a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merim to fight against Israel." Notice now you transfer. You had various kingdom components, but you had head king components. In the southern area, we understood that all of a sudden the king, who was king of Jerusalem area, all of a sudden called all the alliance of the southern kingdoms. In the northern part, one of the larger kingdoms was in the far north, was the king of Hazor. Now some of these particular areas, and you can see Hazor here on the map, become very strategic in a conquest. Because there was only so many areas to travel, so many places to go, travel wasn't easy. And Hatzor represented the kingdom to the far north that would guard the areas of all the people coming through the land. They would have to go through the Carmel Pass in order to get down to the coast. They would have to come through Hatzor. They would have to come all the way through in order to have any sense of solidification in the land all of these northern and southern kingdoms became outposts of security for the people in the land. Well, this, no doubt, this is why Hatsor was very much the central uh, individual, the king of Hatsor, to gather all the other kingdoms. And just like the king of Jerusalem did in the south, the king of Hatsor did in the north. In fact, he extends it because he knows that all these people had ran. They had all run from what was going on with the God who was fighting for Israel. And he sends word to all of these other little kingdoms. Now notice this. The people in the northern hill country. He goes as far north as possible. He goes even further north to the Hivites who are right under Mount Hermon. And he goes all the way to the coast to the people in in the area of Dor. Okay, this becomes critical because if you lived in what was understood in the hill country or in, in Jerusalem as the Shvela, all of those hills, you don't run a chariot in the hill country. Okay, there's too many things that, that impede that. They call to the people at door. Well, guess what kind of descendants or people who would, uh, have, would have landed in the coastal areas? those were in in the past in history when you come to first and second kings first and second samuel these were often the people of the Philistines workers of iron people who were large when they went and searched out the land this is the areas where often many of the anakim or the giants would have lived they gather all of these people and say if we're going to do this And we're going to fight against the God who fights for Israel. We've got to join forces. He sends as far to the east, to the west, to the Hivites, to everyone. He even reaches all the way down to notice the reference of the Jebusites. The Jebusites were the inhabitants of Jerusalem, another name for them. Now remember, they were just defeated in the southern kingdom. But they were all fleeing for their lives. And virtually what the king of Hotzor does is says this. If you are alive and breathing and you can wield a weapon, get up here because we need your help to fight against this people of Israel. And he calls all the people who are left, all the kingdoms in the north, and the stragglers in the south to come up and gather at the waters of Merim so that they could then fight against this God of Israel who had now uh, uh, given Fear and horror in the minds of the people of Canaan because every single place they went, they won. Man, I love that. I love a story where all you do is win. Don't you love being on a sports team that you never lost? That would be fantastic. Every single place they went, they won. Why is that? It's a subtle reminder to us of Joshua chapter 1. Wherever your feet tread... I will be with you every step of the way. And it's an even farther distant shadow of the reality that every battle that ensued was one day closer to experiencing the rest that God would provide for the people when they had one day settled in the land of Canaan that had been given to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These kingdoms rallied around the king of Hatzor. They come and they look to fight against the people of Israel. And of course, all these kings as they joined forces in verse 5. And then it says, as we look at this text, and it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. But did you notice the detail? A great horde of people, as many as the sands of the sea. I mean, in all respects, the people of Israel, I don't know if you would describe their army coming into the land of Canaan as an army that was as the sands of the sea. They had people, they had a God who would fight for them even though they were, on, they were the underdogs in every battle, but they weren't because the Lord was fighting for them. And we learn these stories. Now, one of the reasons why, by the way, this history becomes so uh, transformational and helpful to us is that we have to remember that God reveals history so that you and I can learn from it. Now, this is really the point, I think, as we walk through an encapsulation of of Joshua, the, the latter part of Joshua 10 and 11, and you can read Joshua 12 on your own, is that God really does desire for us to reflect on the past to help us grow in the present. He really desires for that. This is why history is such a powerful element in the life of any culture. He wants us to think about it. He, w- he just wanted to just say, like, I know some of you got to certain days during your week and you think, I am glad that's over. That is in the past and I'm not thinking about it again. Those are great, but the reality is our, our life, the older we get, most of it is lived when we look and we see all of the things. We look in the past and we think, wow. Like, a good portion of my life is gone. I remember when I finally got to the, 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 like, in the 40s, I crossed that cusp of being over the hill. And everybody's thinking, oh, man, you are old now. And you, you think to yourself, and there is a thought that comes into to your mind, and perhaps it came into your mind, when you crossed that particular barrier, you looked back at, at 40 years of your life, and you thought to yourself, I'm half dead. What I do with the rest of this really matters. Because cognitively speaking, I may not be, have a mental capacity when I get up further in age, so I've really got a short window now in order to, to continue to persevere. But you realize that history is a powerful em- element in your life. Think about your own life for a minute. The things that you look back now and think, if only I would have known. The moments where you look back and you see the rejoicing over God's protection, don't you have those moments? Oh man, if it wasn't for God doing this, then I'd be way over here and I'd be off track, but he kept me from this and kept me here. Don't you have those moments? Also, though, of regret and shame, you look back at the history of your life and you think, what was I thinking? And the problem was as I was thinking so quickly at different times is that it forces me to look back and say, that was really foolish. Mental note, don't do that again. I have to learn from those things. There are moments, don't you, as you look back in your life, uh, and this often happens when you go to some kind of a high school reunion of some sort. And you enter there and you remember all those people and you remember your life. I don't know any adult who wants to go back to high school. They think, dear Lord, thank you, those years are over. They think and they enter a room only to be encapsulated in their mind with the embarrassment of who they once were and everyone there knows who they were but they don't know who you are now. History is supposed to remind us and help us reflect areas where we feared the Lord, at times when we didn't fear the Lord. People who in our life were involved, who even at times, out of our own poor choices, suffer massive consequences as, as for reasons because I wasn't thinking in a biblical way. History is powerful, which means that you and I should spend time thinking in our lives how we lived our lives in the past, So that we can think about how it should change in the future. The Apostle Paul did this constantly for for the the impulse of change. Don't live like your former manner of life, like like you did when you were a Gentile. Do you remember those days? Don't live like that. Remember, live like Christ, who you are now. You are now bought with a price, and Jesus now has redeemed you. That should instigate a thanksgiving that allows you to exalt. The Lord. Now, through the conquest and through these historical lessons, uh, what I want to talk about this morning is snapshots of some counsel that we can give, that we can receive from the conquest. Here's lesson number one, I think is really, really helpful. Very short, very to the point. Trust in God's wisdom, Christian. How many times can you remember in your life where you truly believed you thought you knew better than God. You thought he's just lagging behind because he's not hearing your prayers, he's not doing what you think he should do in the timing you think he should do it. There's circumstances that come up. It could be an illness of something that you experience that you can no longer keep from yourself and yet an all-wise, all-knowing God must be trusted. You think about Joshua chapter 10 and you look at verse 42, go there with me if you would. Here it says, and Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel and Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. At the beginning of the whole conquest, Joshua was told, don't fear, don't fear, don't fear, be courageous. Be courageous. And essentially what God was coming to him saying was, you're going to have to trust in me and in my methods of winning the conquest of Canaan. You can't think that you've got this all wrapped up. You've got to trust in me. You you go and even you think about in chapter 11, verse 6, he says the same thing to Joshua. Don't be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. Notice what he's saying to them. You have this great horde of people numbering as the sand of the sea. And there is a sense in which if you and I were warriors at that moment, and you got on a hilltop, and you looked down at the valley and the the waters of Merom, and you saw the northern and all the stragglers who had been defeated coming together to fight you, and you saw their numbers, and you saw your numbers. There is a tendency in the human soul And in the human frailty, in our fallenness, to go, God, are you sure? I don't know. And how many times the Lord comes back and says again, Joshua, don't be afraid. I know these odds don't seem like they're for you. They have their armies of the sands of the sea, and all you need is me. That's all you need. And he challenges Joshua and the people and the elders of Israel to live in a way that exemplifies trust. Trust in the living God who can do all kinds of miraculous things. God's wisdom, believer, we constantly need a reminder. His wisdom far supersedes your wisdom and my wisdom. But do you know the moment at times that happens when all of a sudden Someone may get diagnosed even with some component of, of an illness that even could be to the point of death. People, we all begin to wonder, God, what are you doing? I have lived for you. I have done what you've asked. I want to serve you. And now this is how you repay me? This is what being a follower is? Being a follower of Jesus, Christian, is all about faith. It is all about following and and listening to to the faith that is revealed in the Scripture about a God who is faithful to his people. It is our one heart's desire as believers to live in faithfulness, in trusting God. Joshua had to believe that the Lord would allow, that God would say, when he said, all these kings are going to be lying dead before you. And he's seeing the number of the sands of the sea going, okay, okay let's go. Let's do it. And yet it hasn't happened yet. And why, and why could this be uh, such an assurance? Because in verse 42 he says, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Every young child that would be read the conquest story would be infused into their mind. Now who won the battle, kids? The Lord won the battle. The God of Israel fought for Israel. He's the one who fights for us. He's the one who continues to guide us. Notice in Joshua chapter 11, uh, verse 7, And Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom, and he fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until none were left alive. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses, and he burned their chariots with fire. See, God is an all-wise God, and he is so wise and so sure that he will always keep his promises. His promise to protect, his promise to provide, his promise to guide, his promise to correct you, his promise to deliver us. Whatever his will sees fit in our lives as well. He is a God of justice who continues to help us realize he has all of the earth and all of its history in his control. All the simple verse of what many of us have memorized but often struggle to practice of the Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. One of the most unsophisticated verses in the Bible, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. But how many times, just last week alone, did you get tempted to lean on your own understanding? You and I, as frail people living in a fallen world, often struggle with leaning, thinking, Well, yeah, but I I think I know this one. God, I'll call you when I need you. And God was impressing on the hearts of the people of Israel in the conquest is, you need me in every battle of every day, of every portion of your life. There is not a moment where you don't need me. And the moment you think that you don't need me is when you end up failing. And that's the recording so often, the stories of the conquest, when they all of a sudden didn't consult the Lord. They didn't think they needed him as much as, as they really do. This God that we trust in is a God who keeps his promises. I would challenge you as you walk through your own Christian walk, the difficulties, the hardships, the trials, the enjoyments of the Christian life, what are the promises of God that your heart continues to cling to? What promises of God do you come this morning having your heart filled with heaviness because of things that you can't control? that all of a sudden you need to be going to the word of God and saying, I need to trust in his promises. Perhaps you, you come this morning and your heart is heavy because as you have assessed your life and you, as you have come and you have lived out your weeks and months and, and even uh, consecutive months and you're thinking to yourself, I have not been living for the Lord. You need to trust and dwell on his forgiveness right now. And not give in to the temptation that Satan would love to permeate your mind with that, you know what, he really doesn't want you to do that. You've done enough already. He doesn't want to see you. He doesn't want you to confess. We so often as Christian people take so long to get to the throne of grace. Because we think, well, I'm not worthy. Well, you never were. We never are. So get there and get there quick. Because that is where you need to have your mind dwell. This forgiving God is a promise that he makes. And even after, have you noticed this in your own life, in in your sanctification? He finally gets you to a point where you confess and you repent. And you're like, oh, thank you, Lord, for doing this. And then comes the temptation like, but really, are you forgiven? Did you do it right? Did you say the right prayer? And you're still wanting to be filled with shame. It is that moment that you have to trust in God's promise of forgiveness for you because it's not about what you've done, it's about what he's done. Perhaps you come this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know how my family's gonna financially make it. I don't know how we're gonna supply for our needs that we feel are genuine and really need to have and we've been calling out to the Lord. God is a God of provision. I don't know exactly the timing in which he chooses to provide, but God, you can trust in this provision, provisional God who always comes to the rescue of his people, but not always in the way that we think we need it. And we need to trust that he knows best. We need to trust in the presence of God. There are moments where we so fear what will happen to our lives, what will happen to our families what will happen if some drastic event happens and our minds need to be encompassed with God's presence perhaps you need to dwell on Isaiah 41:10 that says fear not for I am with you be not dismayed for I am your God I will strengthen you I will help you I will uphold you with my right hand perhaps you need to think and reflect on the promise of God's sovereignty Like John 16, 33 says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Believers, this moments of our life, whatever life that you're living, whatever circumstances you are facing, they call us to trust in the wisdom of God. Of God and the promises that He gives to us. The counsel that He instructs us, like Psalm 32 8, when the psalmist says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God has our best interest in mind. When He tells you not to do something, it's for a reason, it's for your benefit. It's not so that you can grow in complaint. It's so that you grow in grace and trust. Perhaps this morning you just come and your soul is so weak, and maybe that even includes your physiological component of your body. You are just just downtrodden in your soul. Your physical body is to a point where you're so desiring rest. You need to reflect on the fact that God's grace is for you in your weakness. Just like he, the Apostle Paul said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, every time I read that verse, I think to myself, like, couldn't it be a different way? Couldn't your, P, your power be displayed in some other mechanism mechanism other than my weakness? But it's through our weakness that we become humble and submissive to trust in the living God and his ways. So often we are so uh, negligent in getting to the point of humility. We have to trust him. We have to trust in his wisdom. And remember that God does not need to give us the detailed synopsis of what our life has been and what our life will be in order for us to finally have to say, okay, I'll trust you. Looks like the plan ahead looks good, so we're good. I'll stamp my approval on it. You can go with that, God. We don't need that. We need to be able to say, I'm going to trust you because faith is faith in what you can't see. I don't know what what, what God will, will, will allow in each of our lives this week. We're constantly coming to God for prayer, for one another, for all kinds of different circumstances. But we can trust in his wisdom that what he allows for any single one of us is for our benefit so that we grow to be more like him. Lesson two: Be determined to obey God's instruction. You notice all throughout the conquest, you notice these various phrases, like uh, in Joshua chapter ten, verse thirty, and the Lord, uh, and the Lord gave it also. Uh, It says in verse 30, and the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel and he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it, he left none remaining in it and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. And, And on the story could go to the encapsulation of these small phrases and they did what God told them to do and they did what Moses said because God told Moses that and Moses told Joshua that and Joshua told the leaders that and though the people followed God in all the instruction. You look in every single one of these passages and the common denominator is somebody was doing something that obeyed the very detail of what God instructed them to do. Christian, how mindful are you of the detail that God calls you to live by? So often I hear Christians say, well, how was your Christian walk? And they'll give some bland, broad brush speaking idea. It's going fairly good. Well, the reality is is that, and so often we like to hide behind these broad brush encapsulations of our life. I don't know a Christian who isn't battling something. You fight your own flesh, and I fight my own flesh each and every week. I have to be mindful that I'm not being negligent to the detail of the life God calls me to live so that I'm being holy as he is holy. So, that I don't just try to take things and go, well, this is important for me, but I'm not gonna focus so much on this principle. Purity's good, I'm good over here, but I'm not gonna work on this element of my marriage or this dimension of being a mother or this particular perspective of being a friend. Take the totality of God's revelation and make it your aim to obey God in every detail of your life. I know that seems like a daunting task it is but the lord will be with us as we make the godly pursuits to follow after what will free us from sin keep us faithful to him and bring him the greatest glory every single time you choose to obey god in the detail he is glorified with your life he is pleased when you confess when you repent when he calls you to a greater, uh, to to greater obedience. Christians, I I would say to you, because I know this is true in my own life, we often become negligent about the detail. We focus on the things we wanna focus on, not the things we should focus on. We start with sometimes the things that are easiest to change versus the thing that you know that God wants you to change. You just hope that you'll get there. Everyone in this room today could take one thing and say, God needs to change my heart in this area and fill in the blank. And there's something that comes up in your mind when you think about what is the one thing you know about you that no one else knows about you, but God does, that he knows he wants you to change, but you just don't want to do it. You need to pay attention to the detail that the Spirit of God is using in the Word to convict your life so that you walk away going, I'm going to get after that this week. I'm going to grow in holiness and being set apart for the living God. Notice the detail of some even small elements, for example, like Joshua 11, verse 9, and it says that they hamstrung their horses and burned the chariots with fire. I mean, if you were, a, if you were the Israelite army and you think, like, we could use those chariots, hello? I mean, why are we burning these things? Well, think about Deuteronomy 17. He says only he must not acquire many horses for himself. Here's Moses giving instruction. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Deuteronomy 20 extends this idea and Moses says, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, this seems like a a good fitting, and you shall not be afraid of them for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Why? Because he didn't want them to trust in horses and chariots. You read the book of Isaiah, it's exactly consistent. You and I need to trust in the living God. It is not the strength. It is not the might of what what military battle or the mechanisms of war. It is God who fights. It is God who will be the common denominator for every single Christian whose heart is fixed on him, who will then live and fight successfully the fight of the Christian faith. They will get up when they do wrong. They will humble themselves. They will repent. And they do all of that because they want to pay attention to the detail. Is that not what 1 Corinthians 10.31 is saying? Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do all to the glory of God. Like, you mean I got to brush my teeth for the glory of God? Yes. Because all of these things are a reflection of who you know you belong to. And every moment of your life is lived out of worship and service to him. Make sure you pay attention to the detail. Look at lesson number three. Lead well. There's one thing that we could understand in the conquest story, in all of these kingdoms, and Joshua being willing to go against the fear that could well up in his own soul and trust in the living God and say, you know what, I'm not going to fear. Joshua was an incredible leader. Joshua stood before the people on so many occasions and said, come on, let's do this. This is what God says. Every covenant reminder, every moment where they would stand before the River Jordan, before the, the, the walls of Jericho, before the southern conquest, before the northern conquest, is saying, let's go. Come on, boys, let's do it again. God is with us. And I would commend you, Christian, don't live your life as if you don't believe that God isn't with you. He is with you in your workplace. Lead well. Think about all the areas in the sphere of which God has called you to lead. It's your duty as well as your delight to lead people in the right direction. Husbands, let me pick on you for a minute because I'm one too. How well are you leading your home? How often are you bringing the word of God to the family that God has given to you? And you are being serious about making sure that other lesser priority items don't take a priority place over God in the in the life of your family. Let me talk to mothers and wives. How well do you lead other ladies? to trust in the Lord? How well do you have your children sit at your feet and begin to nurture them in the things of faith, much as Timothy's mother and grandmother did? Are you paying attention to the detail and not getting so consumed with the difference of what's going on because so many things change when you begin to have children, don't they? It's like, I used to have time. I remember when I could study. I could do what I want, go where I want, and all of a sudden now you're like, I don't have time for that. If you don't take time for your own spiritual nourishment, you won't then take enough time to help your children be nourished in the faith as well. It is a collective effort from leading to submission to the family dynamic. College, youth, children in the home, employers, employees, what is the sphere of which God has called you to lead? It doesn't mean that you're not a leader just because God isn't putting you in a a position to get up in front of a whole bunch of people or at your workplace and do that. He has called you to lead right where you are. How well are you doing it? And what are those marks of a good leader? I'll tell you one mark that Joshua displayed through the whole totality of his life is he was truth-centered. I mean, from the very beginning, when Joshua was told, be strong and courageous, in, in chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, uh, he's, it says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, and be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Even the verse prior to that, don't turn from the right or to the left. A good leader, wherever your leadership entails, will be truth-centered. Why do you do what you do? Why do you believe what you believe? It is because you believe and are anchored to either the truth of God's word or some other false truth that you're living by. God wants our souls to be nourished with the truth. Good leaders will lead as truth-centeredness. But not only that, they have a God-consciousness about them. You notice this about good leaders? Is that they always t- tend to have this perspective that all of a sudden they go, wait, but God is in this, and so maybe we need to be patient here. Maybe we need to pray here. Good leaders, husbands, wives, uh, dads, moms, friends, all of these, you know what, should have a God consciousness enough to say, well, we couldn't have planned that, and that's unfortunate, but we know what a, a God is in control, and if he's allowing something, we, need to, we want to see what he wants to teach us through this. Don't immediately come to the point where you're complaining and saying, God, why do you do this? And I told you I would serve you and, and I was hoping you wouldn't let anything befall me that would be of a trial nature and suffering. Every Christian will go through a various components of trial. Good leaders trust the Lord, trust in his truth, and they have a God consciousness about them. Do you? When all of a sudden your kids say to you, mom and dad, or a good friend says to you, Christian brother and sister, let me tell you what happened to me. Are you saying, while they're weeping, while they're struggling, we need God's help because he's, he's got a plan for this and we can't see it yet, but we trust him. Let's, let's spend some time praying together. Let me lift you up before the Lord. Let's call out, as James says, if you lack wisdom, let us ask of God so that that he can give to us the wisdom that you and I need. Good leaders are detail-oriented. They don't pass over things that should be done. You should look to yourself and in the leadership sphere that God's given to you and saying, am I leading in the detail of my home? Husbands, are you discipling your wives? Are you guiding them to truth? Wives, are you you looking to disciple your children? Are you also reflecting that discipleship of Christ even back to your husband? Brothers and sisters, are we doing that here? Is there obedience to the detail of the of, of God's desire for unity? That far supersedes this place so that when we go away, uh, the conversation in the car doesn't look like something like, oh, we love church, but, and then let's talk about other people? Pay attention to the details so you don't get caught up in, 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 in living a life that doesn't exemplify something that glorifies God. Be merciful. Good leaders are merciful people. I mean, Joshua could have said, forget it, Gibeonites, we're going to destroy you. But Joshua recognized the mercy of God and he would say to the people, No, this is not what God wants. We need to show mercy. We made a commitment. Be merciful. Of this last one, a good leader is a glory deflector. These verses, like Joshua chapter 6, verse 27 after the conquest of Jericho, says this short little statement, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. But you notice something you will never see in the book of Joshua is Joshua never erected an idol of himself and said, here to the greatest conquest and the leader of the conquest. He knew it wasn't him, it was the God that he served. Christian, be a glory deflector. Don't quickly become someone who takes that. And lastly, be thankful for God's mercy. This is a lesson that we need to learn. Look at this very interesting verse in, in Joshua 11, verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should, should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded them. This reminds you, by the way, of a hardening of people's hearts much like Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he says to them, notice it's in the causative tense, God caused their hearts to be hardened. But don't read that and think that they weren't, their hearts weren't also deliberately choosing to be hardened. God uses every dimension, even the hardness of people's hearts, to accomplish what he desires to be accomplished. Christian bluntly stated, don't harden your heart against God. You know, you look at Hebrews. Chapter 3, verses 12 to 18, did you notice this? He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Romans chapter 11, verse 22, when he's talking about Jews and Gentiles and Gentiles being grafted in. He says in, in Romans eleven twenty-two. 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. Believer, there is no assurance of your salvation when you are hardening your heart in rebellion against God. You will not walk away from here thinking to yourself, God is with me. You will fear what will happen to you if God returns this day and you have a hardened heart. Can I just remind you If there's no assurance and there's no reality that you are truly, genuinely a believer because your heart continually is rebellious towards him and hard toward him and there's no assurance, you could be lost for eternity. I plead with you if you are here in that circumstance this morning. You still have breath in your lungs right now and you cannot allow your heart to To be hardened, you can confess, you can repent, you can turn to him, you can come back to him, but you've gotta give up the things that you're finding pleasure in, the people you're finding pleasure in, the ways that you're doing life, you've gotta give it up. Don't think to yourself, well, I'll just do that later. If your heart is hard right now, what kind of assurance do you have that it won't be hard later? There's none. And I fear for you. Don't harden your heart, Christian, just because life's circumstances become difficult. Live for him and trust him. God has a plan, and his patience and his mercy is ever available as long as there is breath in our lungs. But there is coming a day when he returns, and that opportunity will be gone. And maybe that day is today. I would want nobody here to live out the remainder of that. And even if he came this evening and we knew it, I would rather have you live with this one small portion of your day honoring the Lord because you humbled yourself and bore allegiance to the King of Kings. Because that's what the guy hanging on the cross did. At that last dying breath, And Jesus to say those remarkable words, today you will be with me in paradise. Those of you who are here, can you confidently say, when my life is over, I'm going to be with him in paradise. Don't rebel against him before it's too late. Don't harden your hearts. Joshua and the people of Israel demonstrated this constant visible expression to the people like Rahab and her family and the Gibeonites who served that God was merciful to them and so they would be merciful uh, all the long days that they would live side by side with them their whole entire life. God wants us to be that kind of merciful people because that's who he is. He says in Matthew blessed are the merciful. As we close with this remind yourself of Joshua 1.9 Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Christian, that is true for you today, and it will be true for you in the future. Don't harden your heart towards the Lord. Pay attention to the lessons. History is supposed, you're supposed to learn from them so that you trust in God's wisdom you lead well. You will pay attention to the detail. you be a, a person of mercy. And when your life is all over, you will have the rest that God has always promised you to have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us. None of us deserve it. So many of us have gone through portions of our lives where we could classify them as a hardening of our own heart to want to do what you've called us to do. Lord, but true and genuine believers will not sustain that hardened heart and they don't do it on their own. They do it because your spirit moves within them to be honest before you as a holy God and say, there is no purpose, there is no joy, there will be no satisfaction for living for ourselves. Lord, help us to be these kind of people. Lord, thank you for the the lessons of history that you give to us so that we can learn from them and obey you with all our heart. In your name we pray, amen.